Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. Good morning, Sheena. Good morning, Devin. It is 9.40 a.m. at the time of this recording. One through 10, what would you say your energy level is? High, 10 being the highest. I'm a nine. Okay. I've had one and a, yeah, I've had one and a half cups of coffee. Two of my kids are actually gone to quote unquote summer camp at my sister-in-law's house. They're having a week-long sleepover. Oh, that sounds fun. So I have had less draining things to do yeah. this week so far. So, so pretty good, pretty good. So it's safe to say you're at your highest energy level right now, probably for the day. Yeah, I think so. And let's fast forward and let's put ourselves in, let's say, post-lunch, one o'clock. What do you think your energy levels typically are? I am at a four at that point. Significant drop-off. And yes. then And then let's just say around, like, let's just say you end work at five or six o'clock. So right, you know, let's yeah. say 430. What do you think the energy levels are about around then? It probably it goes back up you know probably goes back to a six but then it will drop again to (laughs) like a three Um, I try to do some workouts most evenings around like five five thirty to get the energy back up because I need some more energy to get through the rest of the day but it, it goes down by the end of the day significantly if you're listening to this and wondering why the hell we're talking about this it's because our next guest uh for today's episode Scott Miller we had our interview at about four o'clock, I think, and Scott was at a 10. Uh, I think he actually said he maybe he was at like a nine, but he, he was basically sharing that he was, you know, still peaking at energy, even though he had started his day at like six in the morning, I think he said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just thoroughly impressed at how much energy this guy had for about what seems to be a 10 to 12 hour workday. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he had recorded multiple podcasts that same day. He's a machine. Yeah, he said, I think he said it was his fourth podcast he had done that day. Uh, And I I remember me and you kind of, I think we were slacking before. We're like, we're a little low on energy. We got to pull through. You know, it's been a long day. And and Scott's energy was just like a punch in the face in the best way. Uh, And I was just like so impressed. And I kind of looked internally. I was like, dang, how come I can't have a little bit more energy? I don't know if I can go full Red Bull, but it was uh, was pretty interesting uh, chatting with him. Seriously. Well, I hope if you're having a little bit of a slump that you can get some energy virtually through this podcast uh, yeah. to you. I, I'm hoping so. And it usually does. It usually does. And so uh, we got in touch with Scott. He reached out to us. He's the EVP of thought leadership and the CMO of Franklin Covey. He uh, caught one of our podcasts, wanted to be a part of it. And so we had him on and it was a good chat. He had a, uh, he, he actually has a book that he wrote called Management Mess. And so a lot of what we covered today is exactly that. A lot of his stories of learning the hard way, uh, some pretty some some good laughs in there too, uh, some good stories, and ultimately how he kind of became you know a senior leader and uh, all the lessons he learned along the way. 
Yeah, I, I think what I loved about this conversation and something that we can all take back is he is very uh, transparent and he's very vulnerable in understanding like what situations in him in his life did he mess up? Where could he have done better? And what did he learn from that to take mm -hmm. it forward? So I think that's something that we should all do self-reflection on. It's not always about giving feedback to somebody else or how could somebody else do something better, but where did I mess up and yeah. what could I do better next time? Absolutely. It, it was contagious. I uh, We recorded a couple of weeks ago now, but it's still been on my mind in terms of exactly what you said, holding yourself accountable uh, instead of looking at what others are doing wrong, what could I have done better? Um, and so that's what uh, hopefully this this interview will do for our listeners is just give them a good dose of energy and a good uh, reminder of, you know, holding yourself accountable. 100%. All right, let's go hang out with Scott. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for the invitation. I'm well. Good. And, and I'll share that uh, as we were kind of hanging out before we clicked record, Scott was sharing that he's currently in recovery mode, and this is his fourth podcast that he's doing today. So I just want to applaud the fact that you're able to keep not just an even keel, but a high energy level throughout your day. You know, I think it's God-given. People wonder where this energy comes from, and, you know, I'm just honored to be here, truly. I mean, genuinely, if you're willing to uh, ask me some questions, let me share my, uh, my insights, I owe it to you to bring it my all. So that's what I'll do. Well, we appreciate that, and I think it leads right into our – our uh, first icebreaker question, which is what's something that's part of your daily routine that you think all leaders should consider doing? You know, I'll tell you, at the top of every hour, I've learned to discipline myself, usually from about 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., about a 12-hour span. I ask myself, is how I'm going to spend the next hour of my time going to bring me the highest and biggest return? Not just to me, but perhaps to my employer, Franklin Covey, to the books that I'm writing, to the listeners of a podcast. I have gotten to a habit the last couple of years of every hour in the hour, kind of now just like clockwork, I'll say, so is how I'm going to spend this next hour the best use of my time. And generally speaking, now it is. But oftentimes, a couple times a week, I'll say, you know, it's actually not. This is not the best meeting to be in or the best call to be on and I'll just decline and not show <laughs> with you know some explanation but that's a routine that has really allowed me to maximize about 12 hours of work time a day and I think it's led to some of my productivity gains since I put that in place that's huge and and first of all thank you for deciding about 15 minutes ago that this is the best place to spend it your was, current hour it was a <laughs> conscious decision believe it or not i mean you know hey it's gone how can you refuse but still it is something that i put into place as a discipline a couple of years ago kind of formulaic set it set an alarm to ding you know at the top of the hour and now it's just natural now literally like you know sometimes you set an alarm for 5 a.m and you wake up at 5 a.m every day thereafter which is my habit now i just naturally reflexively look at the clock right about the top of every hour, six to six, and make a decision, is what I am doing going to be the highest value of my time? And I might, just, I might say, you know, no, but I'm willing to spend 30 minutes on it. I'm going to cut it in half and then use the other 30 minutes to do something of higher value. That's interesting. I think that's what everyone kind of strives to do. Probably no one is as disciplined as you are. When you're, when you're reviewing that next hour, Scott, I'm curious, is there something you're looking for to be there or to not be there? Like, is there kind of like a trigger where you're like, ah, there's this thing, yeah. I see it, and I'm like, I'm not yeah. going to dedicate time to it? Absolutely. I mean, the question, the lens is, is this progressing my priorities? Is mm. this progressing my mission? Now, it might be that it's progressing my employer's priorities, right, because they're, they're employing me. I, I happen to be the executive vice president of thought leadership at Franklin Covey, been there for 25 years. 
Um, so, you know, you know, on office hours, I'm theirs. But if I'm writing an Inc. article, I, I'm a columnist for Inc. magazine, I might decide, you know what, the deadline is more important for this book that I owe a publisher than it is for Inc. Or maybe I should be writing my blog post for LinkedIn. So I, I usually will switch off and on depending upon how it makes me honor my commitments meet deadlines and progress my own priorities. I do not like to be a part of someone else's plan. I like to be progressing my own plan. I can respect that. And you're very authoritative in that where I can hear confidence as you say that. Well, they, you know, I, hope so. I hope it's not arrogance. I mean, I'm 51 no, no. guy, ladies and gents. So I've learned a few things. I mean, let's, let, let's be very clear. I am an officer in a company and I have a fiduciary responsibility to progress Franklin Covey's mission. And mm -hmm. I do that with responsibility and joy and, and uh, abundance. And at this point in my life, I don't want to be part of someone else's plan. I want to progress my own plan. I can appreciate that. Let, let's dive into that a little bit. You are the uh, v SVP. No, excuse me. You're the EVP, e EVP. Of, thought, of thought leadership. Don't demote me to the SVP <laughs> level. Come on. Oh, man. Now we have to do a take. No. Um, and so I'm, I was curious when, when we first chatted, Scott, I've actually never heard of a VP or even a director, uh, let alone an EVP of thought leadership. Yes. And I, I have heard of, a, obviously, a CMO. But you are an EVP of thought leadership and CMO at Franklin Covey. What does that entail exactly? Yeah, so uh, quick, quick, bit of the, quick trip down the journey. So I was the CMO for Franklin Covey for eight years. I stepped away from that role formally about a year and a half ago, and I became the executive vice president of thought leadership. I was the executive vice president of business development and the chief marketing officer. I mean, technically on paper, I guess I'm still the CMO, and I, and I can play that function as appropriate. But executive vice president of thought leadership, I'm still a member of the executive team. I'm a named executive officer in the firm reporting to the CEO. But as you know, you know, public relations roles have kind of really evolved or disappeared over the last couple of years. No longer are there newsrooms or reporters where you call to pitch a story. They're gone. They're disappeared, right? These reporters don't exist anymore. You know, public relations has morphed into thought leadership. Really, it's the new PR. So in our company, where thought leadership is everything, right, intellectual property, thought leadership is how we build our brand. It's how we articulate our point of view. It's how we share our expertise. So my job as a member of the executive team is to make sure that everybody in the world who should know who Franklin Covey is, does. And that isn't, you know, seven and a half billion people. That's a couple of million people that are chief learning officers, that are CHROs, that are vice presidents of training or development, that are in charge of talent and capability development for organizations. So my job is to make sure that through podcasts, through interviews, through books, print, digital audio, through articles, interviews, keynote speeches, you name it, that Franklin Covey is out there not boiling the ocean or net fishing, as we call it, but more importantly, spear fishing and making sure that our expertise is in the minds of those who have an interest in letting us come in and help them solve a problem they have. So we, we elevate it as a very important role, and I'm quite honored to be the first one in that role. You should be. It was, I, I, it was a I, long answer. Sorry. No, it's it's a very clear and concise mission statement, both for you and from Franklin Covey that I that I can hear. But I have to say, you were probably not 
always the EVP and CMO. So, you know, before you were on podcasts, what, four times a day and before you had, you know, publishing books, what did it take for you to get to where you are today, right? So maybe a little bit on the starting point and maybe, sure. you know, if you could explain like, you know, did you have a hunger to write a book and that led to five? Um, did you like the way you sound on a podcast? You said, I'd go for it. I'd love to hear a little bit more of kind of what got you to where you are today. Yeah, none of that is true, actually. So <laughs> how I started my career in Florida. I'm actually from central Florida, Orlando. I live in Salt Lake City now with my wife and our three sons. I worked for the Disney Development Company for four years out of college. That's the Walt Disney Company's real estate development arm. And I was in a real estate development um, capacity for Walt Disney. They invited me to leave which is a nice way of saying they fired me. And then at the age of 26, I moved out to Utah, which was the opposite of Florida, right? No humidity, four seasons, little crime. I loved Utah. Uh, joined the Franklin Covey Company 25 years ago as a frontline salesperson. I was the, the salesperson selling leadership development and productivity solutions to universities, school districts, community colleges. I carried a bag. I had a quarterly number. I did that for four or five years as a frontline salesperson, increasingly honoring my sales and revenue commitments, helping clients achieve success so they renewed and came back. I then became a sales manager, sales director, sales vice president, moved my way up into the chief marketing officer role. I had a marketing education in college, but wasn't, you know, wasn't an expert CMO. I, I acquired that role through, I think, a lot of, uh, a lot of hard work in terms of being someone who was credible, high on character, high on competence. The CMO liked my style of delivering on results. I saw, I saw myself more as responsible for developing business than just, quote, managing the brand. I was a different kind of CMO. I didn't talk about impressions and talk just about brand equity. Those are great things, but you can't staple brand equity to the back of your bank deposit slip. You can't payroll, meet payroll off of brand equity. So I was very deliberate on helping to build leads in the pipeline and convert them into revenue to fund the power bill. I was really pragmatic about it. And so, you know, 23 years in the firm, I decided to move over into this role. It was my decision. The CMO actually asked me to stay, or sorry, the CEO. And it was time to bring someone in that was beneath me up. And he has, you know, moved the marketing division to places where I couldn't. I'm quite comfortable with that. And so as I became a little more interested in leading our thought leadership and joining that team. I decided to write my first book. I've since then written several books and are, have written several more. Decided to host a radio program on iHeartRadio. I host a podcast weekly that is now the world's largest podcast dedicated to leadership. It, it came through guts. It came through disrupting myself. It came through a bit of bravado. These are not my natural skills. I'm not a naturally great writer. I'm not a naturally great speaker. Uh, you mentioned earlier, I actually have a stutter. I, I am a stutterer. I've had a tremendous amount of, of speech therapy and speech pathology and braces, but I'm a pretty, uh, I like to take risks. Seth Godin, a good friend of mine, taught me the difference between being reckless and being fearless so I'm trying to be more fearless and more easily disrupt myself before someone else disrupts my career for me. So that's kind of the journey. What was the driving factor to go from a sales rep all the way up to that CMO level? Like you, you went through it really quickly in your story, but I have to imagine there was a little bit more to it. Like what was, you know, pulling you in that direction? You know, I think I like change. 
I think naturally, which is odd because I was raised in a very stable family. My parents live, have lived in the same home for 56 years. My father had the same career for 34 years. Uh, so I was raised with, with, with stability and, and kind of even keelness. And I think I like change. I crave changing up. I like, I like to take ch- risks and challenges. I think I recognized that if I wanted to move up in the organization, I needed to try and do new things, move to London, move to Chicago, move back to Utah several times. So for me, I think it was about, you know, stretching my skill set. I tend to get bored fairly easily. I have about a four to five year lifespan for any one career. I've been blessed to have had about uh, gosh, you know, seven careers inside of Franklin Covey. I've been very fortunate to have to build and kind of scratch that itch inside one company. So I think part of it is an urge, uh, almost a need for change. But I also think I recognize that you're going to be disrupted. Either you do it yourself or someone else is going to act on you. And I told you, I like to be a part of my own plan. So I'm, I'm generally pretty fearless around moving into new opportunities, new careers, stretch my skill set. I'm okay to say I don't know how to do that. I have a, a pretty big vulnerability muscle. I'm very comfortable saying, now, what does that acronym mean? Or you said that word, what does that mean? I, I'm not easily embarrassed. I actually don't have the embarrassment gene. I, I, my wife wishes I did because I would be more gracious at dinner parties. But I don't tend to have um, the propensity to be very, very easily embarrassed. So I'm comfortable stepping out into the deep end. So, Scott, you've, um, you're a thought leader in the leadership space. You've written multiple books um, about leadership. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your own personal leadership style and how you've seen that evolve over the years. And if there were, you know, maybe there were specific moments that led you to shift your approach to how you lead teams as well. I would best call it tyrannical. I think most people would say (laughs) my style was suffocating and unrelenting. I mean, it's why I wrote the book, because here I was a leader of people in arguably the world's largest and most prominent leadership development firm. And I'm like a bull in a china shop. You know, I'm like most people that are promoted into leadership roles. They shouldn't have been. The reason they were promoted was because they were the most competent individual producer, right? They were the most effective dental hygienist or the most creative digital designer or the top producing salesperson. Before you know it, now you're the leader of the sales division. And you like that because now you're in power and you're an influence making more money. It's no correlation to the competencies that makes you a great digital designer and you being capable of leading the digital team. So for me, I think my leadership style was like most leaders. I was making it up. I was trying to turn people into my clone. I thought my job was to be loud and in control and brash and charismatic and influential. Now, maybe some of that's true. I know lots of leaders that are a little more retiring and quiet, deliberative, contemplative, that doesn't describe me. So I've crashed and burned a few times. Not bad, like splat, like ouch, that really hurt. My leadership style has evolved tremendously. I think like most leaders, when we become leaders of people, and by the way, not everyone should. I have a very deliberate point of view that not everybody should be a leader of people. Just like not everybody should be a thoracic surgeon or a commercial airline pilot, first me among them. 
not everyone should be a leader. In fact, I'll tell you, I'm not sure I should have been a leader of people. I'm better now than I was. But this pivot point that we all face is there comes a time when we realize as a leader, your job is to get work done with and through other people that you are not the smartest person in the room. You are not the genius, but rather you should be the genius maker of others. That a little more patience, a little more abundance, a little more of a mindset that your job is to coach and grow and mentor and turn the spotlight off of you onto them. That's, that's a maturation. And I went through that in my 30s. And I'll tell you, if I can share a story, as the chief marketing officer, I'll tell you, I thought my job was to be the smartest person in the room, the most creative, the most well-read, the most punctual, the hardest working. There used to be a joke in the division, best idea wins as long as it's Scott's. Now, that sounds funny, but I think it was truthful. And I realized that I was fairly intimidated by people who were more competent than me. And there came a time when Franklin Covey's marketing needs began to evolve. We needed, you know, significant digital expertise. No longer direct, you know, just email and direct mail and interviews and videos good enough, right? We needed to become experts at marketing automation and Google Analytics and search and, and all those digital assets that we were a little bit late to the game with, not now. But I was fearful of bringing in people who were smarter than me. I thought they would expose me. We all have this concept of imposter syndrome. So I think I did the firm a bit of a disservice when it came to recruiting the best possible talent. I did not search the world for the expert in Marketo or the expert in Adobe or the expert in Google Analytics. I found people who were high on character, hard workers, people I liked, and then I let them let them be part of my team. And then I tell you, I read the book by Liz Wiseman called Multipliers. Changed my life. It actually took an outside leadership book to change my leadership style. And Liz Wiseman, I highly recommend this book called Multipliers. And basically her philosophy is many of us that are well-intended, people of high character, we have these accidental diminishing tendencies when our goal as a leader is to be moving away from those to become multipliers. I said it before, multipliers are not the geniuses in the room, but rather they're the genius makers. They don't have to be the experts. They don't have to be the know-it-alls. They can be you know, um, broader leaders. They're comfortable. They're confident enough to surround themselves with people. So I went through a transition where I became much more comfortable being surrounded by people who were palpably, noticeably more talented than me. I could not have done that in my 30s. I I honestly did not even, I didn't have the capability to admit that in my early 40s. It was in my late 40s that I became more comfortable that my job is to be a talent magnet, recruit and retain the best possible talent and then clear away the red tape, solve their problems, give them feedback on their blind spots, build a culture where they choose to stay and collaborate and thrive. And my, you can see my leadership style has changed dramatically. Let me share one final thought with you. HBR published a report a few years ago that said that the average age that someone is promoted into their first management position is age 30. Yet the average age that that same person receives their first leadership development training, age 42. 
Wow. Which means people just like me, right? They're wrecking havoc across organizations for 12 years. They're just, you know, bringing the same skills that got them the promotion into their leadership role. And like me, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're jerks and they're tyrannical and they're, they're micromanagers. They're not bad people. These are good people that haven't been trained. They haven't been coached. They haven't been mentored. And I kind of fell in the same spot. You know, the cobbler's kid has no shoes. I work for a great organization. I think, you know, a decade ago, we didn't spend a lot of our own time developing our own leaders. We were out fixing other organizations. I, and I say that with respect to our firm. So I think that's one of the biggest ways my leadership style has evolved. That's super interesting. I think highlighting that gap between when one becomes a leader and when they're actually given the skills and maybe trained on that aspect is something that every organization should take a closer look should at be it. horrified by it. yeah yeah it's a, it's a, it's a huge opportunity there the leaders are the ones that are helping to take the organization forward um, and and motivate the rest of their teams all right everyone you know what we do in every episode we'd like to have a data breakout a quick sidebar to look at the data and it's possible or okay probable that scott is one of the most efficient leaders i've ever met so it only felt right to share some data and tips for time management. And here's what I learned from HV MacArthur's Forbes article, Effective Time Management While Working Remotely During the COVID-19 Pandemic, which shares the insights that Clockwise, a smart calendar tool found by analyzing user behaviors. If you haven't already, embrace that meetings are increasing. Clockwise saw a 12% increase, that's one and a half hours per person in meetings compared to life before shelter in place. Next, pay attention to time between meetings. It's important not to be passive with the time to breathe between your meetings. Clockwise saw an 8% decrease in the amount of focus time measured by blocks of two hours or more used for deep work. MacArthur suggests blocking your calendar for high priority projects, unless you want someone to book that little bit of white space that you have left on your calendar for something that might not be quite as important for you. That's easier said than done. I know firsthand, but interesting all the same and worth trying out this week or maybe next week if your calendar is already looking pretty double booked. When you look back on your years when you were in sales, do you like what unique characteristics do you think define a sales leader and, and you at that time um, versus other experiences that you've had in marketing or, or otherwise? Specifically, a sales leader is your question, not necessarily a salesperson. Is that right? Yes, exactly. As, yeah. as a leader yeah. of sales. Right. Yeah, I think a couple of things. I and mean, I think that point I shared earlier is to recognize that you need to develop a leader's mindset, that your job is to get work done with and through other people. So as a sales leader, your job is to build capability in others. Your job is not to rush in and save the day or rush in and close the sale for them. Although, of course, you know, don't be naive. There's that temptation and sometimes you need to do that. Your job is not to turn that salesperson into your clone. They don't have your skills. They don't have your fears. They have different skills, different fears. Your job is to really get to know what are their strengths and what are their weaknesses. And I'm happy to use that term, weaknesses. Your job is to build a relatable relationship. Let, let me debunk something. You hear this HR adage all the time that people are an organization's most valuable asset. It is absolutely not true. People are not an organization's most valuable asset. Rather, it is the relationships between those people that are your company, company's killer app. 
That is your organization's competitive advantage. So as a sales leader, your job is to build a high trust relationship with those who work with you. Yes, there is a hierarchy. Yes, they report to you. Yes, they are responsible to you. Yes, there is some inherent respect you know, with the, the, the employee and the leader if you've earned that. But your job is to make it easy for them to admit what they're scared about. Easy for them to do role plays with you, to see you as their champion, not as their principal or as their superintendent, right? You're their coach. You're their champion. You're their leader. Now, when I was a sales leader, I had some very strict rules. One of them was um, bad news is unacceptable. Wrong news is not acceptable. If you deliver me wrong news, that means you are making it up, you are incompetent, or you are lying. Bad news means something changed, right? Your, your forecast has gone from 80 grand down to 60 grand because a deal fell out. That's bad news. My job as a sales leader is to deal with bad news all day long. And the sooner as a sales leader, you can create a culture where it's safe to tell you the truth. Hey, boss, I got to lower my, my forecast. I had a deal fall out. You know, that happens. That's my job. My job is not to blow up or to shame you or to curse or to, you know, throw something. My job is to say, let's sit down and deconstruct. Why did it fall apart? Could you have learned it earlier? Thank you for telling me immediately because the sooner you tell me, the sooner I can go over and pull some other levers. But the longer you wait and hide it from me, you box me into a corner and I can't pull in the other levers. That's different than, you know, building a pipeline full of crap opportunities that aren't real and they all fall out. That's just a bunch of bad news. So I think you can be a, a strong leader and set down policies and procedures and expectations and cultural imperatives and still be very approachable in terms of being a coach, a guide, a mentor, a confidant. Let me tell you, people don't quit leaders who love them. People quit bad bosses and corrupt cultures. But if your team thinks you love them, and I mean, I, that's appropriately, right? But if they think you have their back, you're interested, you want them to win President's Club, they have the mentality that their job is to help get you to President's Club. If a sales leader, if my intent is to build your income, build your confidence, build your skills, build your 401k, help get your kids through college, I am going to lead you differently than I think my job is to help you get me in good standing with my boss. It's a fundamentally different mindset. So for me, I've come a long way when I would coach sales leaders on what are some of those, you know, those vital skills. So Scott, every sales leader wants to get better. I think that's kind of a given, or at least we'll, we'll assume that we'll make that assumption. What are some of the common mistakes that you've seen sales leaders make or specifically that they're making today? And what are some tactical advice that you can leave them with to help overcome that? You know, when you become a sales leader, you usually are going to have more experience and more reps than your team. So the first thing I would say is be very careful about being a light, not a judge, being a model, not a critic. So don't tell, show. Don't admonish, coach. And then those might, might be cliches on this phone call, but there's true stuff. So just be thoughtful that you're going to have vastly more reps, you know, some that went wrong and some that went right. So be, be very genuine and interested in building your team's capability over time. You didn't get to where you were in four quarters, and nor, nor are they. 
I think the next thing I mentioned earlier is you're going to have skills and passions that aren't replicable in them. Some people cannot present the way I present, and I can't calculate margin as fast as other people's, right? So there are different skills. So be thoughtful about, you know, putting, trying to make clones of you. I think the first thing I would do is really tap into people. Again, I, I say this, I mentioned it earlier, is the more vulnerable you can be as a leader, the more your people will grow. That's why I wrote the book and titled it Management Mess. You know what? As a leader, own your mess because you've got your own because everybody knows what they are, right? The receptionist, the CEO, your vendors, your clients, your spouse, everybody knows your mess. So why not just own it? Because when you own your mess, you make it easier for others to own theirs. Sit down. Share some of your big horror stories. Let me give you an example. When I was a sales vice president, I put a deal together. It was a horrible deal, and we ended up having to pay someone $50,000 because I had unwittingly but illegally used their trademark. I didn't hear about this thing called Google where I could actually Google whether or not someone else had the same name for a product. So I launched this big program, and six months into it, we get a letter from their attorney saying, um, pay up or see you in court. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm so incompetent. I didn't even check to see if this program was copyrighted. I walk into my CEO, and I say, I got a problem. I share it with him. This is an extremely competent CEO, right? Harvard Business School, has a billion dollars, climbed the Matterhorn, run the Ironman like 40 times, right? I mean, he's like their typical high-performing CEO. He's also very kind. He's also very forgiving, but he also has a very high standard. I go in and I confess this big level of incompetence. He closes the door and says, sit down. And his name is Bob Whitman. He's still my boss. He says to me, let me share you my doozy. And he, he proceeds to share when he was back in private equity, he and a partner owned a bunch of restaurants and they owned a big like go-kart track, like a national franchised go-kart track. And as the story goes, he took out a bunch of billboards where he also had used an image that they weren't allowed to, had to take them all down. It was a much costlier financial mistake than mine, but it was that vulnerability. It was that the way he reacted, the way he immediately forgave me and turned it into a coaching moment. He didn't admonish me. He didn't need to. He didn't reprimand me. He didn't need to, right? It's kind of like when you're, when you're um, suspended from school and junior high school and you go home and then your parents ground you for a month. Like, seriously? I was just suspended. You're grounding me also? So for me, I think it's a great transferable insight to leaders is – vulnerably, abundantly, share your worst sales story, share your worst client meeting, share the biggest time you screwed your boss by cooking up a pipeline that didn't materialize and they end up missing their quarter because you didn't give them good information, right? Share these things abundantly. You will become relatable. People will not do the same thing because they'll know that you're looking for it. Some of my best bosses, are the ones that have made any conversation safe to have. It has not lowered my respect for them. It has increased it because I did not want to cash in that chip and prove that I wasn't listening. It is uh, validating to know I'm not the only one who may or may not have been suspended in junior high and promptly grounded right afterwards. Oh, good grief. Yeah. Uh, we won't get into that. That's a well, different podcast. Well, plus I was Catholic, right? So then you got to have to go to church and confess it to the priest, right? <laughs> that helped a lot. It, it sounds like ownership <laughs> is critical in your view of, of self-development. 
Um, how can sales leaders who are listening surface some of those weaknesses, maybe proactively? And, you know, no one wants to, to learn the hard way, like which is the great story you just shared. What are some ways that folks can kind of do some self-reflection and say, okay, here's, here's those top three things I should be working on this quarter, this year. Any, any advice there? For their own development, not the development of their team, right? Correct. Self-reflection. Yeah. Yeah. So you call it self-reflection. I'm going to call it self-awareness because uh, I don't know that a sure. lot of people practice legitimately self-reflection. I, I get it. You asked a very fair question. I think self-awareness is probably the most underutilized leadership competency because self-awareness flows from feedback. Very, I'm not self-aware. When I leave a dinner party and my wife, you know, drives me home and shames me about all the crazy things I said <laughs> at the dinner party. Have you ever had that drive of shame? I call it the Friday night drive of shame. We get in the car. She'll say, you had to go there. You promised me you would not bring up Trump, right? So, I mean, whatever the conversation is, you know, I'm like, well, what are you talking about? They loved me. She's like, no, they did not love you. Did you see the, the, the looks they were giving you? No, they loved me. No, Scott, they did not love you. So I think self-awareness, you call it self-reflection is probably not as high in us as we think it is. Self-awareness comes from feedback, from having other people talk to you about your blind spots. So how I would answer your question is the following, is if you want to grow your self-reflection, grow your self-awareness through making it safe for other people to tell you their truth. What is it like to go on a sales call with you? What is it like to be in a pipeline review meeting with you? What is it like to come to the end of the quarter with you and make my goal, but now I have no celebration or no collaboration? What is it like to bring a deal to you and then you steal it from me and close it for yourself or take the credit? Whatever it is, right? Ask what it's like to work for you. What's it like to be married to you to bring it personally? Go home tonight. Ask your partner or spouse. What's it like to be in a relationship with me? You'll learn a lot about yourself, some things you won't know. But I think the more self-aware you can become, the more effective you are. Because we all have these repeating behaviors that we don't see, right? Our breath doesn't smell as good as we think it is. We're not as funny or as punctual or as nice or as collaborative or as forgiving, right? We build these illusions about ourselves. And the only way you can really, I, I think, at least for me, is to practice true self-reflection, is to make it safe for people to tell you their truth. And I say their truth because not all truth, according to Rudy Giuliani, is truth, right? I mean, some people look at you and they see their ex-husband. Some people look at you and hear their ex-boss. So not all feedback that you solicit is about you. You have to be very thoughtful around who you curate it from, both from your detractors and from your supporters. A lot of us go to our to our best friends and best confidants, and they just validate are things because they're not willing to move outside of our comfort zone or their comfort zone, either because we haven't made it safe, because they don't want to cross us, they don't feel comfortable. So I'd say self-reflection is just, you know, is paramount to knowing what it's like to have you as someone's sales leader. You think you know, you don't know. And it seems like we should be asking this feedback of our teams on 
an informal, ongoing basis. It's not just something that's part of an annual review process. Like we should have yeah. this in real time. I mean, do annual reviews still exist? I hope not. I mean, <laughs> Some that's places, just, yes. I mean, that's just sick, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you bring to this idea of continuous coaching, it goes both ways, right? As, as a leader, I off, I'll often be asked in keynote speeches, what's the best way to get your team to take feedback? And I say, well, duh, model it. As a leader, model that you crave it, you solicit it, you ask for it, and when someone gives you the feedback, you don't refute it, you don't deny it, you don't say, oh, yeah, but you know, you know, Tim in that meeting, he talks nonstop, he drives me crazy, so I have a – no, 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 just write it down, ask some clarifying questions, say, you know what, so when you see me doing that, what's going on? Am I feeling nervous? Am I under pressure? Am I intimidated? I mean – when is the last time a sales leader has ever in front of her or his team asked for feedback and then said, that's interesting. When I do that, why do you think I'm doing that? Do you think I'm, think I'm embarrassed or I'm nervous? What do you think? That's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of strength. That's confidence. That's humility. That's being relatable. You can still hold someone accountable for their sales number and admit that you once missed your sales number or twice or three times. That, that, that's not being a fraud, right? I mean, being a hypocrite is doing one thing and saying another. Being congruent is changing your behavior and being a model of what now, what should do. So I hope, I hope that's helpful. I think um, – I come back to this vulnerability piece so often. You can still be a respected and influential leader that grows and stretches contribution and be relatable and share stories that are real and be open to people's feedback to grow your self-reflection. That's the kind of boss I want to work for. That's terrific. And it ties all back to like being human, being vulnerable, connecting with your team um, and opening up. So I, I think it's all you super know, aligned. And your, your question was about when. I think it changes for everyone. You can treat people differently and still treat them all fairly. Some people like feedback via email. Some like it in private. Others are quite comfortable being called out amongst their peers, right? I mean, I'm very comfortable having the CEO say, Scott, you know, you were over your SG&A by 40 grand last month and, and, and calling it out. I, I'm very comfortable with that. Your book that you published was Management Mess to Leadership Success. Can you tell us about your messiest management situation um, and maybe how it ended up turning into a success, if at all possible? So when I was first promoted as a sales leader, I was promoted because I was the top sales producer. I was, I was uh, devoid of many of the leadership talents we've talked about in the last 45 minutes. My first act on the job as sales leader was to pull together a two-day professional development training. We just launched a new leadership program. Our team had not been through it. How can you sell a program that you yourself haven't been through? So I, I managed to convince the vice president to fund a two-day training. We hired the consultant. We you know, catered it, went off-site. And the first day, everyone shows up at 8.30. Now, the start time was 8 o'clock. And I was incensed one week into the job. By the way, these were my peers a week beforehand. I was promoted over them. And in most cases, they had been in the firm longer than me. And in many cases, they were probably more mature than me and certainly older than me. I burst on the scene now as their boss, ready to fix them. 
Yeah, I hear you laughing. You've, you, <laughs> you've worked, you, yeah, you've worked for me, right? So the first morning, I show up at 7.30. I bring down fruit trays and, and bagels and croissants, and I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve my team, the noblest of leadership talents. 8.05, no one's there. 8.15, 8.20, I'm incensed. 8.30, people start to show up. Now, damn it, we're a leadership development company. We're a productivity company. We invented the Franklin Planner people, right? We are supposed to be on time. We get started at 8.45, and I am incensed. Like, palpably, you can see my anger. I take no attempt to disguise it. I feel insulted. Like, all things, we turn things about us, right? Well, hello, people. Most things aren't about you. We make them about us, including me back in that day. So I managed to suffer through the day. I don't hide my contempt for everyone's flaunting of my leadership mantle, right? So that night, I go back up to Park City, Utah, where I live. And the next morning, instead of stopping at Kroger's and buying more croissants and bagels and fruit, I stop at the grocery store and I buy, I think it was 12 copies of the Salt Lake Tribune. And in my greatest ever leadership moment, I come down to the meeting that's supposed to start at 8 o'clock. And to equal part horror and delight, everyone's late. 8.15, 8.20, They start trickling in. I'm like, how could you do this? But thank you for doing it because now you've fulfilled my expectation of you. So we open the meeting at 8.45, and I, with great flair, throw onto everyone's desk a copy of the Tribune, and I pull out the classified section. And I toss a highlighter, and with enormous flair, but regret, I say, if you want a job from 9 to 5, Dillard's is hiring. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, this is just going to, this is going to establish my authority. People will respect me. O-M-G. People stood up. One guy quit on the spot. People were disgusted. The consultant was just like in slow motion, no! I mean, it was like, it was horrible. And I could not believe it had gone wrong. So what do arrogant leaders do when they're caught in a bind? Well, you double down. I was going to say, you double down. (laughs) Double down, right? I'll crush you, people. Well, of course, that didn't work because I was an idiot. So it took me three or four hours to go around and apologize to everyone after this consultant sat me down. I actually thought I was in the right. But I realized I had to do something to bring it back together. So I went around and I apologized to everybody. Sure enough, by about 11 o'clock, I had everybody back in the seats again. Who knows if we learned a damn thing the next eight hours. So that story did not end well. Here's how it ended, though. Ten years later, when I'm 41, actually, I was thinking, yeah, 41, I, I get married for the first time. The only time. We're still married 11 years later. Almost every person to a T was at my wedding. Oh, wow. And we were all out drinking champagne up on a hotel deck, laughing our asses off at what a total jackass I was 11 years beforehand. We're all still friends to this day. I don't burn bridges. I'm really good. Well, let me phrase that. I'm good at burning bridges, but I'm also really good at stitching them back together pretty quickly. So I look back and am proud of them. I'm proud of me, We, including the consultant, Nancy Moore, was there. And we're all just like laughing, crying at how, what an idiot I was and that I've you know, grown this far. We're 
all still friends to this day. It was really a tender moment to see a decade later that we all had, you know, still managed to respect each other, forgive each other, and realize, you know what, we're all just, you know, doing our best. Well, I have to say, I, I wasn't expecting the story to go in that direction. So <laughs> well, no, let's be very clear. Yeah, yeah, they did not learn a thing in those two days, right? I blew all that wad and couldn't get it back. But over time, it's a delight now to think how we can laugh about what a total jerk I was. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that is funny, and it did remind me, if you've seen Glenn Gary Ross, I was going to say that approach worked for Alec Baldwin, but I guess it doesn't really <laughs> relate to real life as well. No, not really. Um, well, cool, Scott. We're going we're gonna to head towards our wrap-up questions. Sure. Um, and one I'd love to know is, you know, now that we're you know, working remotely as part of COVID-19, I'm, I'm curious for any advice you have around how sales leaders can help keep their teams both motivated and determined. Yeah, I have a couple of top of mind things. I think communication is so important because you can over communicate. The more you talk, the more mistakes you're going to make. The more you talk, the more you're going to say things that aren't accurate or aren't helpful. So instead of that, be very deliberate, be very clear, be very concise. Don't feel the need to answer every question or over communicate. You can talk too much. So that first thing I'd wrap up in is be concise, be clear, and don't try to move outside of your expertise or out of your lane. If a question is asked, you can't answer, say, I don't know the answer to that. Let me ask the CHRO or the CFO, and I'll come back to you. That's the first thing. Second thing is FaceTime is everything, right? Is Zoom, Skype, whatever it is literally FaceTime, you ought to be checking in daily with your people. Now, remember I said checking in. I didn't say checking on. There's a fundamental mindset difference. Your people know the mindset. Hey, how's it going? How can I help you? Any struggles? Any triumphs? Any lessons that I could divulge from my own toolbox of mistakes that I made? How are you feeling? Oh, I see your kids in the background. Remind me their names. Hey, guys. Hey, girls. How's it going? How's school going? Right? Embrace them. People cleave around leaders that love them. So check in, don't check on. I think the other thing too is, was that something I do is I do a group text almost every morning. How's it going? Everybody alive? Everybody okay? Anybody have a fun evening last night? I just redo a quick text stream. It's just building rapport. It's building connection. People are isolated. People are scared. People are petrified, right, for their mortgage for their health care, for their health, for their parents. People are wondering how they're going to buy food next month. Salespeople are in commissioned roles. They can't live on their draw, barely. Their pipelines dried up. They're emotional roller coasters. They're scared to death. How are they going to buy groceries next week? Show empathy. Show relatability. Show that you're scared. You don't have to project some false sense of confidence. How's that helpful? I mean, project confidence in the future. Show that you too can be nimble and be creative. Change is a very emotional process for people. Don't expect all your team members to have as much information as you do. They don't. They weren't in the last staff meeting with the CEO or the sales vice president, right? They're out on a limb. They're wondering if they're going to get furloughed or they're going to get laid off. So be really thoughtful around how you show empathy and that 
change is very emotional for people. Let people break down. Let them see some of your fears. Talk about the fact that your kids are running around with underwear on swords, you know, as hoodlums when they should be, quote, online with their digital learning. The more relatable you are, the more present you are, but also the more clear and concise and realistic you are, the better. If there is bad news coming, share it. People can handle bad news. What they cannot handle is wrong news or no news. Well, Scott, with that, we will wrap up. And that was phenomenal. Thank you for bringing the wisdom. Definitely brought the energy and a lot of really, really valid and timely leadership advice. We appreciate it, man. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Stay stay safe to both of you. Thank you, Sheena. Thank you. Every week, we like to bring you a micro action, something you can think about or put into play today. Scott mentioned how important self-awareness is for himself as a leader, and it's something that can take years to acquire as you stretch and grow your skills, experience, and know-how. Especially now, during the age of COVID-19, and with the social injustices coming to light across the world and the protests that are following, leading today has arguably never been more challenging. There are more moving parts than ever before, topics are sensitive and emotionally charged, and it's something that we're all going through for the first time. So before we can act as leaders, we need to establish ourselves internally. We need to ask ourselves, how are we supporting our team, ourselves, and are we doing enough? So as an exercise to help you become more self-aware and contribute to your team's well-being, here are some self-reflection questions to think through. First, how have you been communicating with your team when it comes to these events? Does your team have a space where they can voice their feelings and concerns? True support starts with listening, something Andrew Sykes helped us with in our previous episode. Next, for you, where is your personal stance? If you haven't already established one, now's the time. People will ask you, your team, your peers, your buyers, and it's important to have a clear stance that represents you, and even better if you have one for your company. Give yourself time this week to establish it if you haven't already. Now, I'm no pro. I'm learning this as we go, just like you. My hope is that our interviews and micro actions are helpful in providing insights and clarity that'll help you along your leadership journey. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.